All right, Mark chapter 12 is where we're headed today. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to open up to Mark 12. And um, this is a, a very important chapter in the ongoing story of Jesus. We're marching closer to, uh, to the crucifixion here in our studies. And of course, as you know, Easter weekend is coming up in April, April 17th. Uh, yeah, April 17th is Easter Sunday. So we're just a few Sundays away from that. And, um, and we just happen to be in the right place in terms of our, uh, our uh, chronology here with Mark and Mark's gospel. So I encourage you guys to read ahead in Mark's gospel over the next couple of weeks and just familiarize yourself with the text so that uh, you're once again in the right zone as we talk about uh, as we talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection. But before we get there, Jesus has got a few more things to teach. We had uh, in Mark chapter 11, the triumphal entry, and, uh, and then Jesus cursing the fig tree, cleansing the temple, and, uh, and his authority being challenged. And we had a, a discussion about that a few weeks ago. Mark chapter 12, we get another parable from Jesus. And, um, and then we get a few challenges to his uh, his authority from the religious leaders of the day. But in this chapter, Jesus is going to make a very important, uh, he's going to draw a very important cl- conclusion for you. And honestly, if you're reading through and you're reading fast and you're not paying attention to the overall picture, you might miss this. So I want to I pick it out and show it to you. And then there's something else that's a, a little obscure in there that I want to show to you as well. And I'm hoping we can get to it. There's a, a certain uh, a certain theme that appears three times in these in this chapter uh, that's a little bit hidden, and you might not notice it. But I think it's it's elemental in the building of Jesus's church. I think it's one of those core value issues that we really need to pay attention to, and uh, and I want to draw it out today. So it's not a primary theme in the, in the text, but it is a secondary theme, which if, if we spend time there, will become one of the core, primary core values of our Christian community. Uh, so this is what I love about the Word of God. You can dig around in there and you'll find things on the surface. And then you dig a little deeper and you'll find things down there that you didn't even know. And if you were to get yourself a backhoe and dig on down even further than you've been before, you'll find stuff you never even knew was there. You'll never get bored of reading the scripture if you approach it with a heart of faith. Amen. So I'm going to read to you this chapter, and uh, I'll try to read through it reasonably quickly. It's just good to hear the word read out loud. It's probably going to take a majority of my commentary time to read it out loud, but then we'll just quickly go through a few of these ideas and catch them on the way through. You guys okay with that? Mark chapter 12 from the English Standard Version. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. If you've read the book of Isaiah, this sounds familiar. You'll find it in Isaiah chapter 5. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of them, uh, to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The they there would be the religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees, who were the religious elite. They were aristocrats, and uh, they were the high priests and the high priest's family and, and others. Important people, uh, men of, of, of uh, great standing and great wealth in the Jewish community. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Denarius being a day's wage. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Here's a little point that I want to make as we go through there. I could spend a whole day preaching this sermon, but it's very interesting that the inscription on the coin, of course, was an imprint of either the Caesar's uh, head on the back and some, and some words or some, uh, some ungodly image that uh, might be on the face of the coin. Uh, anything that was graven would be considered idolatrous. And if anybody claimed to be God or the son of God, uh, that was idolatrous. And in all the Roman coins that were minted at that time, this would have been a coin with Tiberius's face on it. Uh, that inscription would have been Tiberius, the son of the August, or, or son of God, essentially. Um, and, uh, and this would have been considered uh, anathema. Interestingly enough, though, the people who were uh, testing Jesus happened to have these coins in their pockets. So um, talk about hypocrisy. Uh, they don't believe that these coins should be used because they've got false inscriptions on them, but of course their, mon their money is in their pockets and they're quite happy to have money. So there's a little bit of a dichotomy there in their value systems. Does that make sense? In addition, the inscription on the coin gives us a really, really, really important uh, correlation, a story that you need to know about. And we don't have a lot of time to go there, but do you remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? God said, let us make man in our image. So God imprinted mankind with his image. And so when Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, whatever has the image of Caesar, give that to Caesar. And whatever has the image of God, give that to God. Essentially, that's what he's implying here. What is he actually saying? It is a very important thought. You and I have been made by God to be image bearers. We carry the image of God. Now, that image was distorted through sin. That image was distorted through our rebellion. But the image has been restored in Christ. If we will repent and turn from our wicked ways and call upon the name of the Lord, then we will be saved. And the imprint of God on our lives will be restored. The truth of the matter is every human being is made in the image of God, which is why we must love one another and even love our enemies. We talk about loving our enemies. Thank you, Doug, for bringing that out. 
in your uh, admonition there, the, the truth of it is, the reason why we must render unto God what is God's is because every person has been imprinted with the image of God, and therefore we are God's currency. And let us render unto God what belongs to God. So the hypocrisy of these leaders is pulled out front and center in the most powerful and amazing way. And I just want you to think about that all day long. And let us also, therefore, consider when we question Jesus about his integrity or about his ways, or when we think about how we ought to be as Christians in our world. This is not so much a statement about state and religion. This is not so much a statement about our civic responsibility as it is an absolute in-your-face reminder that every person around you, whether you like them or not, is imprinted with the image of God. So, respond accordingly. What a powerful lesson. Moving on. And the Sadducees came to him who, who say that there is no resurrection. That, by the way, is the only time in Scripture we have any definition of who the Sadducees are and what they do. We have to gain what we know about the Sadducees from Josephus and other um, historians. But that's all we know. They believe that there's no resurrection. What a, the, the, old, the old joke, of course, is that's why they're sad, you see. Sorry, that's lame. Lame pastor joke. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs> they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is called leveret marriage, and you read about it in the book of Deuteronomy. There were seven brothers, and the first uh, took a, a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and then the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they arise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. You hear this? You hear this, uh, this test? It seems like it's one that they've used before. They've probably landed on this as a fantastic way to undo the whole idea of resurrection because it just doesn't make any logical sense for resurrection. And Jesus responds like this. Jesus said to them, verse 24, it is, not, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Key verse. If you have a highlighter, highlight that verse. We're going to come back to it. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Hmm. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Pause, just pause for a moment and hear the word of the Lord. 
Oh, thank you, Lord. How powerful. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribe say that Jesus is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's a quote from Psalm 110, which happens to be the most frequently quoted scripture of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Interesting. David calls himself the Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard Jesus gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who would like to walk around, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Okay. <clears throat> Five minutes ago. <clears throat> Maybe I'll take a couple extra minutes. We'll see. <laughs> I see in Mark chapter 12 a definition of how to build the church. Literally from beginning to end. Mark chapter 12 is in, its, in itself just so rich and full of principles for the building of God's house on earth that I just can't get over it. I can't get over how rich it is. I think there's marble here to build floors and there's gold here to make uh, ornaments and there is enough here to build a beautiful temple for the Lord. Us being, of course, the temple. Let's take a look at it. First of all, in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus tells them a parable about God's vineyard. The vineyard theme is not new to us. You've probably heard it before. But for Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 5, <clears throat> it was a vision of Israel. God took this vine and planted it. He took it out of Egypt and he planted it in the promised land. And the vine was Israel. And God built this, this vineyard and he, and, he, and he built a tower. He put a hedge around it. He built a pit for the pressing of the grapes. And in Isaiah's passage, the vineyard produces sour grapes. The vineyard produces bad fruit. That image of God's intentional development producing something sour is a polemic against uh, 
against a, a nation, a nation who refuse to acknowledge God and bear the peaceable fruit of righteousness. For us as a church, it would be, uh, I don't think, a stretch to take that parable and not just see the historic value of it, but to see the prophetic value of it and look at ourselves as the planting of the Lord. We also are a vineyard of the planting of the Lord, and He has planted us here. And as an individual church, as well as the corporate church, the church of God, community-wide, Cape Cod-wide, maybe even in the whole earth, <clears throat> we have some responsibilities. But let's bring it back to home, and let's make it this little microcosm of church that is here at 46 Mitchell's Way. God planted us, and God has dug around us, and He has given us the resources that we need, small as, the, as they may seem to you, perhaps, but big in God's mind. He's, he can do many, many great things with small things. He uses the weak things of the world to confound the strong and the wise. This is God's favorite story to tell. So he's built a vineyard here. The question is, will we be like the Isaiah bunch that Isaiah writes about in Isaiah 5? Will we be those who bear sour grapes to the Lord? What makes for sour grapes? Well, we don't have time to get into that, but it's a good question to ask, isn't it? Maybe you can come up with some solutions and offer me some ideas. But let's take the lesson in our hearts and say, I don't want to produce bad fruit for the Lord. In this passage, however, in Mark chapter 12, the polemic is not so much against a nation that bears bad fruit, but against leadership, leadership that do not give God what is God's due. Now, before you point your fingers at the elders and leaders of your fellowship, Consider that you are also in some way a leader in your sphere. You may be a leader in your household. Uh, and uh, maybe you're a dad and you've got a wife and kids and God's given you the responsibility and the authority in God's order and structure of family to take the, those responsibilities squarely on your shoulder. Maybe you're a mum inside of that structure, or maybe you're a single mom. You also have responsibility because you are training and teaching and also living out many responsibilities. If you're married and, you, uh, and you're in that relationship, you are, uh, you are a helper to your husband who is a helper to you. And together, side by side, you are fulfilling the Lord's responsibilities that he's given you to produce uh, in, in this world around us the kingdom of God. If you're not married, or perhaps you're a single mom, or maybe you're a widow, you still have responsibilities because there are people in your life. You are never actually, utterly alone, are you? We all have people that we interact with. And these responsibilities are important. So before we point our fingers at leadership, we must recognize that in our own sphere of leadership, big or small, we must remember that we have been called by God to give Him His due. Whatever it is that he's given you, if he's given you a business, if he's given you ideas, if he's given you children to raise, if he's given you relationships to promote, if he's given you the word of God to teach, if he's given you prayer for others, remember this, that we have a responsibility for the giftings that he's given us. And while the family of God is the best way to interpret this vineyard, the truth is that the vineyard could be any number of things that God has entrusted to you for his kingdom's sake. Do we get the picture? Yes. Remember this, that everything we have, everything that's good, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light. God has given you these things and will require from you an account of what it is that you have done. 
Jesus' parable is not just a polemic against the religious leaders of his day, although clearly he's telling the parable against them, but it's very possible that every one of us could see ourselves in some way here. This is not that we should become guilty, but I will say it is good form to read the scripture and say, God, what do you want to say to me through this verse right here? Not everything that God says in the scripture is directed towards you. He speaks angrily towards those who are, uh, those who are opposed and proud. Maybe you are not proud and you don't need to hear the angry words of God against the proud if your heart is humble. So not every word spoken by God is for you. But just remember this, that not every good word spoken is necessarily appropriate right now. Because if you're living in blatant sin and disregarding the commandment of the Lord, then it's very possible that the, that the warnings and the stern warnings of the Lord are actually for you right now. So approach the scripture with a humble heart and say, Lord, what would you say to me through this today? In this case, you've given me responsibility and a vineyard as such to tend. Am I giving you your due? Or am I like these guys finding every excuse to say, no, no, I don't want to give that to God. This is mine. I'm taking this for me. You know what? God, you get enough. You get enough of everything. You take where you didn't plant. You reap where you didn't sow. This is mine. You know what? You've been away far too long, God. You left me on my own, and I've taken ownership. This is mine, and I'm not giving you the glory that you do. Listen, be careful, because that hard heart can happen to any single one of us. Read through the accounts of the Israelites marching through the wilderness and discover perhaps how quickly those things can happen. The moment you have a lack or a need, it is amazing how quick your faith will take wings and fly out the window. It's amazing. Run out of water for a couple of days, and you might find yourself quickly in the camp of the murmurers. Guard your hearts, my beloved brethren. Let us be patient, and let us endure, and let us remember that the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. And let us give God the glory that is due His name. If there's one thing I can say that's universal that we all need to have with regard to the vineyard that the Lord has given us, it's that our life and our living and our bodies and our mind are also in themselves a vineyard of sorts. And the words that come forth from our mouths and the attitudes of our heart are in many ways the fruit of the vine that is the Lord's planting. And therefore, we ought to all give glory to God through our worship. This morning we sang a song, it's your breath in our lungs, so we give you our praise, right? We sing out our praise. We shout out our praise. Do you? Do you? Because the Lord is due that. That is his righteous due. And you, as the vineyard of the Lord, please, I beg you, produce sweet grapes. Let the words that come forth from your mouth give honor and glory to him. I digress for a moment because it's just suddenly there in my head and I've got to say it, undisciplined as it may be. I happened to be at Market Basket eating chicken the other day. It's very good, the fried chicken, just saying. And I was sitting there with Tammy and with Kara and we were sitting underneath a television. And if you know me, I can't sit underneath a television and have a conversation. I just can't. If that television is on, I just can't help myself but be drawn to it. It's like, it's like a moth to the flame. So if you ever invite me to your house for a meal, please turn off the TV. I'm just telling you in advance. I won't be able to pay attention to anything that you're saying. So anyway, I'm sitting there, and the girls are chatting, and they're talking, and we're eating chicken, and I just can't help it. I'm watching Dr. Phil. 
I don't even know who Dr. Phil is, but anyway, there's Dr. Phil, and he's got this couple on there. And I don't know, maybe you guys have watched this daytime TV stuff before, but I, I don't know. Anyway, they started showing some video of this guy and the way that he was abusing his wife. It was caught on a video camera, and he was, and he was dressing her down, yelling at her, cursing her out in front of her three-year-old child or eight-year-old child or something. And she was just standing so scared, the scared little bird standing stiff at attention while he was in her face, spitting in her face like a drill sergeant, condemning her because she didn't put the dishes in the dishwasher, because she left some crumbs on the couch, or because she lazes around and doesn't do anything all day. I thought this stuff was just the stuff of bad stories. It was reality, man. This was just unbelievable. I wanted to get up there and punch the man in the throat. It wasn't a godly response, but I'm just saying it was there. I wanted to get up and punch that guy in the face and kick him when he was down. How dare anybody speak to anybody else like that? And it occurred to me, there are many things that go on behind closed doors. God forbid that any of that happens in this church. I'm just telling you, if there's anybody in here, male or female, and you are abusing somebody else with your words, Listen to me carefully. God will pour out his wrath and vengeance on you. Mend your ways immediately. The Holy Spirit will not tolerate that. Don't you think that you can come into the house of the Lord and raise your hand in worship and then go home and raise your hand against your spouse? God forbid. I offer that as a warning to anybody who's listening, anybody that's here in the room. These guys, it's easy to see their hypocrisy. It's a little harder to recognize our own. You may not be lifting your hand or you may not be as intense as that guy on that Dr. Phil show that's freaked me out, by the way. I just haven't been able to think about anything else for days. I'm like, I'm just so angry right now in my spirit about the abuse that takes place in families. I hear, I hear that during the COVID, the COVID season, over the last two years, there's been so much domestic violence and people have all been cooped up together and there's been domestic violence. God forbid. Repent. Anyway, what fruit is our vineyard producing? What's coming out of your mouth? And as a church, this is, in my opinion, one of the most important things. If we want to build a church, it doesn't matter. We build, I mean, they're building this beautiful cathedral in Spain. Maybe we'll get to see it when we go to Spain next, in a couple of months. Sagrada Familia, have you heard about it? This, they've been building it for over 100 years, 150 years, building this incredible cathedral. And uh, it's just, it's amazing. But of what value is it to build an edifice that costs billions if we can't even produce the sweet fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So core value, my friends, for the church, core value. Let us produce sweet fruit and let us give that fruit to the Lord, not taking it for ourselves. Okay. There are other things in here that I would love to talk about, but the one that I promised I'd get to, and I have to leave it at this. I don't know if you noticed this, but the word widow gets mentioned three times in here. Did you notice in chapter 12? You, you might have noticed at the end, of course, the widow who put her two mites in the offering, right? 
And Jesus said something about that, didn't he? He commended her and said, interestingly enough, that what she put in was of more value than all the wealth and riches given by the rich people. How can that even be? What kind of value system are we working with here, Jesus? As it turns out, he says it is much harder to give out of our poverty than it is to give out of our abundance. It's much harder to give when you don't have anything at all than it is to give when you have a whole lot. I think I would tend to agree. And it also becomes quite an excuse for me when I don't have anything to say, well, you know what, Lord, if I had a little bit more, I'd give. You know my heart, Jesus. If I had some more, I would give. So give me a little bit more and I'll happily give to you. But this teaches us a lesson about giving that's completely different. This one presses us to give when we have nothing. Why? Is it because the church needs money? Clearly not. It's because what the church needs is faith. Interesting that in this particular passage, the one who had faith was the one who didn't have a husband. And in the Jewish culture, a widow was probably on the lowest level, uh, or maybe, maybe the, the deepest level of socioeconomic need. They were alone in the world. If she didn't have sons to take care of her, she was alone and destitute. She had the lowest socioeconomic standing and the lowest standing in society at all. She was in tremendous need. This would be the welfare class, but below the welfare class, the very bottom of the welfare class. And yet she gets commended by Jesus as having the greatest faith. What are we seeing here? If not a reversal of our value system, the way we see each other and we see others in the fellowship and outside the fellowship for that matter. As it turns out, it's not the wealthy that have the most to give. Each one of us has the most to give. It's neither the wealthy nor the poor, but you, but you, you have the most to give. And the question is, are you giving it? The vineyard in the first part of the, of the story was producing fruit, but they wouldn't give it to, to the owner. At the end of the story, the vineyard doesn't produce much fruit, but it all belongs to God. You understand? And this widow is amazing to us, uh, to me. But more than that, the widow doesn't just get mentioned once. Just before that, there's another mention. There's actually two mentions of this, of this widow idea. And uh, the first one is in the story that the Sadducees bring about the resurrection. Did you notice that? There's a widow there. Her husband dies, and she doesn't have any sons. So now she's got to be married to the husband's brother. And she gets passed on down through seven brothers. Now, it's a story it may or may not have ever happened in, in, in the universe. I, I don't know. But, but certainly leveret marriage did happen. Uh, we know that because of even the story of Boaz and Ruth. What a powerful and beautiful story that is. Can't read the story of Ruth without crying every time. There's two stories in the Bible make me cry every time. You'd think it would be the resurrection story. And, and I, Lord, I, I love your resurrection story. <laughs> but the story of Joseph... And the story of Ruth, they make me cry every time, every single time. Anyway, liver at marriage. This, uh, this widow is destitute. But this idea of the widow, Jesus actually, of course, he doesn't go after, but it pops up in this, in this account. And we can't ignore it because there's a widow here. And then there's a, a widow that, the, that the, the scribes are taking advantage of uh, when Jesus says, beware of the scribes because they devour widows' houses and for a pretense, make long prayers. In what way do they devour, devour widows' houses? Well, as it turns out, widows often have um, 
an inheritance to leave behind. Well, they didn't have sons. If, if their husband's dead and they don't have any sons, who do they pass on their goods to? And so the scribes will sidle up to the widows and become all friendly so as to uh, be named as the uh, beneficiaries of the will. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a very good strategy for church funding. You know, go after those who don't have any money, you don't have any people to give money to, but they've got money and they're coming up on, you know, it's, they're going to get their ticket home, so let's make sure we make friends with those people. Can you see that, I mean, there's no one of us that thinks that that's noble, right? But it happens all the time. But these three accounts of widows in this make me, they make me sit back and think. And I don't have time to get into it all and try and tie it all neatly together and make this beautiful tapestry and say, wow, well done, Eric. No, I don't. But what I do have for you is the fact that this idea of the widow is front and center in chapter 12, which in my opinion teaches us how to build church. I don't believe the church can be effective until we can see the value of every person, particularly the ones who are at risk. And I don't think the church can be effective in the world until we can take on responsibility for those who are at risk. Now there are many who are at risk and we cannot help them all. But as a fellowship, it is important that we recognize who are the widows within our group. And I'm talking figuratively now, as well as literally. But who are those who are at need within our sphere of influence that we actually can help? And who are the ones from whom we can receive fruit from their vine as unto the Lord? Can we make place at the table of the Lord for those who are for those who are in need. Question, to bring it a little closer to home. Who are the widows in your life? Who are the widows in your personal sphere to whom you are reaching out? And if we use the word widow figuratively in this sense, it could be anybody that is in any, any place of need for any length of time. And they may be a widow today and not tomorrow, if that makes any sense to you. Maybe I'm stretching this thing a little bit too far. But the mission of the church needs to be something we all take up individually. Before we can ever do it corporately, we need to have this culture within our own hearts that we as families, we as individuals, look for those around us who are precious to the Lord, who carry the impression of God, the imprint of God, who carry the very image of God, how can we help them to give their two mites to the Lord? How can we do that? In what way can we get them to a place where they are able, in faith, to make the greatest contribution? That's a vision, isn't it? That's a vision for you personally and for your family. That's uh, definitely more time than I had asked for, and thank you for being so patient. But I hope it's worth it. I hope that you will find encouragement in those statements and a challenge to go home with. Today, I want to remind you that there are a few folks in need in the congregation who could use a little help, uh, a little encouragement, a little phone call, maybe a meal or something. 
want you to remember Scott Curry, who is stir crazy right now. Scott, if you're watching, we love you, buddy. We miss you. I know you'll be back sometime soon. Uh, but for the next few weeks or, or so, uh, Scott is still not allowed to do anything. You know, he had open heart surgery, so he's uh, recovering well. I took him out to breakfast on Thursday morning. The guy was so happy to get out of the house. If you have uh, some time off and you want to go and uh, help Scott, he would, I'm sure, absolutely love it. Also, if there's anybody that'd be interested in volunteering to do a little yard cleanup at Scott's house, I know he's got two strapping lads. We'll try to get them lined up to do this as well. But uh, sometimes it's hard to get your family to do what needs to be done around the house. And it's no, you know, we, we don't say anything bad about that, about Scott and his family. It's just everybody gets busy. But if Scott's yard doesn't get cleaned up, that old boy, he can't sit still. He's going to get out there and start pulling weeds, which would not be good. Does that make sense? So I don't know about you, uh, but I think it may be a good idea for us to maybe find a little bit of time. If anybody's got a little bit of time and wants to go pull a weed or two, or just keep Scott company and stop him from pulling weeds in his garden, this would be a great week, and over the next couple of weeks, a great week to do that. Um, he likes Starbucks coffee, bold roast, black, no sugar. Just saying. So um, Scott Carey could use a little encouragement and some help. There are a few others around uh, around town that I want to just mention by name in case the Lord puts them on your heart for you to think about and care about. Pauline Schweck, okay, our greeter. She hasn't been here for all the the COVID years, but Pauline is um, she's having cataract surgery in a, a week or two weeks or whatever. But she can certainly use some encouragement if you go to visit her. She's right on 28. You can get directions. Give her a call. Wear a mask. Go see her and say hi. And um, uh, Debbie Cattell is another one. You guys love Debbie and uh, just think about her. You know what? If, you, if it comes to mind, send her a card. Send her some flowers. Go visit her. Take her a meal. Or take her out to lunch or Panera or something. Uh, and, and maybe there's a bunch of others that you can think about uh, right now that could use a little encouragement. Um, let's consider how to help them to bring their two mites to the Lord because apparently that's precious in Jesus' eyes. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as a fellowship, we will truly produce beautiful, wonderful fruit for your kingdom. May you truly build up this vineyard here at Living Hope Family Church. Dig around us, Lord. Plant us. Water us. Put a hedge of protection around us to stop the marauders from coming in. Build a watchtower. And as those who are your tenants, Lord, we make our vow to you that all the fruit from this vineyard will be yours. Not unto us, but unto you be all the glory and all the honor. Lord, we pray for our friends who are in need, and we ask especially for our friends in Ukraine, and uh, ask, Lord God, that you would continue to provide and protect and bring peace. In Jesus' name, amen.